0: Hello and welcome to the Sprint Podcast. The Sprint Podcast is a meeting place for all things agile and product related. In each episode, we'll talk to some of the most knowledgeable people from the space and pick their brains on what is happening out there in the world of product and agile. Sam, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, I suppose it's only been a, a, a week, maybe 10 days since you and I first caught up and I thought we had a really robust discussion, kind of off the cuff really, Um, And because of that, I thought it would be worthwhile trying to maybe record the conversation on the basis that we're running this podcast to try and give back to the Agile community to a point. Um, And I feel like the best way we can can do that is to have people like yourself on, telling your story, sharing insights, because I think the majority of people who will end up listening to this will be those people who are either in the space or have got an interest in the space and are looking to make that move. So I'm going to give you a quick introduction. And I'm going to do my very best to be accurate with this so you can tell me if there's anything that I get wrong. Go for it. Sam is an enterprise transformation specialist who has been contributing to the Agile community for over 10 years. Um, He's a pro Agile coach. He's hosted his own podcast called The Unofficial Agile Podcast and is the co-founder and board member of Agnostic Agile and is an all-round lovely chap. Did I miss anything? Did I get that right?
1: It's pretty much on the ball, Um, I I would say. You know, I think it's been probably a bit more than 10 years now, Um, but but that's beside the point. Um, I'm not sure about the last bit, though. You'd have to ask other people.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll see. We've got about 45, 50 minutes here to decide, and we'll we'll let them (laughs) make their own decisions. Um, So, yeah, mate, thanks for jumping on. Um, I suppose a a good kind of starting point for the discussion um, is you and your story and your background and, and kind of how you got to where you are. Yeah. So I was hoping you could maybe share that story and tell us and the listeners kind of how you got into the position that you're in today, how you fell in love with Agile, and why you ended up in this space.
1: So I have a background in delivery. When I graduated, I went in and I joined a consultancy. And for about four years, uh, I did everything from business analysis, uh, software development, projects management, testing, and so on. So you do the whole, the usual consultancy circuit, right, when you're a grad. Um, I came out of that consultancy um, as a developer, so I worked as a developer for uh, I think it was about two or three years. But then I quickly decided it's not really uh, it's not really a profession that suited my personality type, and I was much more interested in people and um, and change and and that kind of thing. So I went into delivery, I went into project and program management, and that's what I was doing for most of my career up until you know. I would say about four, maybe five years ago. So up until four or five years ago, I was purely in delivery. But here's the thing. Um, Delivery doesn't mean waterfall project management. It can do. um, But it also means delivery as in, well, what's the best way to set up teams within a large program? What's the best way to um, uh, focus around your objectives and your outcomes? And how do you design for that in terms of the teams? And so I spent a lot of time doing that kind of thing. And that's where Agile came in. So my drive uh, to to place myself, I suppose, purely in the Agile space later on, came or was born from my days as a pure delivery professional. Because in when you're running big programs, you have to, it's transformation as well, right? But on a smaller scale, it's change. You set up your own teams. You decide how this virtual construct called a program actually works, you know, with the help of other people as well. So it it all started in delivery. And then essentially that was in London. So then I moved to Melbourne in late 2017 and something very strange happened. I got branded as an agile coach. But that's, I'll stop there.
0: (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Was that just an organic thing? How, How did that come about?
1: So the thing is the market in Australia is at least at that time, just over five years ago, I found quite different to the market in the UK. Um, I have always pretty much when I got into the Agile industry, or when I started doing Agile and finding out about Agile, I learned about coaching, agile coaching, that is. I learned, you know, I did all the certs and all that stuff. Um, Went on the courses, read the books, blah, blah, blah. Spoke to people, went to meetups. I learned all about it. It's something I incorporated into my role as a delivery person. It's never something I said to myself explicitly and uniquely, that defines me, that defines what I do. Agile coach. Not at all. And I still don't think that. When I moved over to Melbourne, it almost seems as if you could either be a delivery person or an agile person. Well, that that was my experience anyway when I moved here. And I still think to an extent that's true. And I think it's such a flawed thing because in my view, the best people I have worked with and the mentorship and the career advice I give you know, people who are coming into the industry or who need some guidance is don't box yourself into just being an agile coach or a a scrum master for that matter like you really do need experience in delivery because that is what agile is all about so for me things like yeah go ahead
0: i I was gonna say i think the market may potentially be starting to catch up with that way of thinking and we, we may touch on this a little bit later i do think the perception of what an agile coach can be and should be is changing as is that of a sort of delivery manager or a project manager and it seems like I suppose those skill sets, those people are now expected to wear multiple hats in many respects.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And especially from your observation, you know, looking across the market as you do, right, as a recruitment professional. um, I've always found that to be the case, uh, just in terms of the practice. um, So the actual doing of the work. I, I think, and this because of the macroeconomic situation and so on, maybe we'll talk more about this later, certainly the clients that I've been working with recently, in the past, let's say, two to three years or so, uh, have really started to think about um, agile professionals and the role types especially, agile coach, scrum master, etc., as something of more of a luxury uh, because they are more enablement roles. I think, where from my perspective uh, and experience recently, where businesses are starting to focus more on, is what are the director value roles, right? Because the workforce, the agile workforce, in the sense of consultancies and agile coaches and scrum masters, I think, um, because of the you know economic situation and, and all of that stuff, especially in Europe, um, and soon to be here, um, I, I in my opinion. Um, I think businesses are proceeding cautiously and there's and a lot of risk to factor in.
0: My observation of, of what's going on right now um, is kind of similar to what we saw happen at the beginning of the, the COVID pandemic, in that, you, you, as you rightly said, the agile coaching profession and skill set at that time certainly was viewed as a luxury item. Um, and, and so when the, the pandemic sort of kicked off, the agile coaches, unfortunately for me and agile coaches, um, were some of the first people to be let go. And right. what we're seeing now in the current market condition, whereby obviously we're not in a pandemic as such, but we're, we're in a, I'd say, uncertain economic time. That's enough for those skill sets, the pure agile coach roles, certainly to be viewed as luxury items. And again, that is potentially why organizations are beginning to pivot and perhaps they want to attach some delivery accountability to their agile coaches or they want to kind of tweak that role and, and be able to draw value from what an agile coach does directly back to the business in a, in a more obvious way.
1: Yeah, precisely. I mean, I 100% agree with you. It's, it's totally been my observation as well. Um, and, it, you know, it's there's another factor to this. That's kind of the idea, right, of agile in general, you're supposed to be internalizing this stuff. You're not supposed to create dependencies on external consultants or agile coaches or, or anybody else for that matter. You're supposed, they're supposed to be helping you internalize this so you can get on with your own business. And, um, and I think that is, that is a realization that I think everyone knows, but because of the way we work as you know, uh, well, everyone needs jobs, right? So I think it's a kind of double-edged sword in that sense. Um, You've done a great thing if you if if the client can or the organ, your organization can let you go. In my view, that's yeah, great. Yeah, that means yeah. you know, you've done some great work there, right? My my whenever I engage with a, a client or an organization or, or whatever, it it's always like, well, how can I work myself out of this equation as soon as possible? And that's always been my approach because I come from that consulting background anyway. Um, so similarly with the, with the agile coaching stuff, a lot of them are contractors and so on. Well, that's your job, you know, internalize it, do the best you can, but at some point you need to move on. It's just a shame that the market in general is experiencing a big downturn.
0: That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, it's funny. I think, um, kind of new ways of working as it's been sort of built for for the last little while and, and agile ways of working. I feel like the the kind of understanding of that is changing as well. And it it isn't really new ways of working anymore in the same way that it was years ago. Um, And perhaps the role of an agile coach really does need to to evolve with that Um, because realistically, organizations have matured to some extent and perhaps they don't need necessarily that skill set as much as they did. And that's not me Mm -hmm. trying to be doom and gloom about the skill set. And obviously I work in that space and I'm I'm very passionate about the community. Um, But maybe there is a change coming.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think so. It kind of goes back to what I was saying before and how I developed my career. Whereas I I really see and I still see things like the skill or the hats, if you like, of an agile coach, of a scrum master, and everything in between and everything beyond that, those kinds of enablement roles who work with teams and teams of teams and so on. In my view, they are best incorporated into direct value roles. Agile, as we understand it, and ha- as we've all experienced it, is ninety nine percent about delivery. Right, delivering product, iterations, and so on and so forth. We all know this stuff. Now, the people who actually deliver product, who have the accountability for that, depending on the organization in the industry, it's going to be your product, your product managers. Your project, your program managers, and so on. So we still have those constructs. So I think um, you're incredibly valuable and employable if if you assume those kinds of roles with all of those hats that you've got expertise in agile, from scrum mastering to agile coaching and everything in between. You know, and that includes all the, you know, the 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 umbrella of agile, lean, kanban, scrum, scales, frameworks, all of that stuff, right? you incorporate that, you package it up into a director value role, you're going to be very hireable, if that's all. word. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, 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 will, I will tell you from a recruiter's perspective that if I come across that person or those people, I know I'm onto a winner.
1: Amazing. And, you know, it's really good to see, because um, we come at it from different perspectives of the market, right? And it's really good to see this kind of convergence between what you're saying and, and what I've been experiencing as well. So yeah. that's really good.
0: Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, so taking you back then to that, to that move to Melbourne, um, what were some of the most kind of significant differences that you found between the kind of London European market versus the Australian market? Because I've been told and without knowing, um, that sort of Europe is four or five years ahead in terms of their, their agile maturity compared to Australia. Would you echo that? Or do you think that's a bit of a, so that's,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, when I moved here, people told me that Europe and so on were about 10 to 15 years ahead. And I I said to them at the time, there is no way that's impossible, right? It's not like it's all rosy, you know, back home uh, in terms of the industry. But um, I think after five years of being here, I can probably honestly say, I think it's close to around eight to 10 years. Um, Really? Yeah. And the reason I say that is because when I moved here, but, but, but let me just caveat that. I think it's fast changing. I think it's fast changing. When I moved here, um, I went into this big, huge organization, which we shall not name, but it's a telco everyone would have heard of. <laughs> and um, okay. you got and, probably a
0: 50-50 chance on making yeah, that guess correct.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. And that's another difference between that and back home. There's so many options in terms of, you know, mobile phone services and here there's like two or maybe three main options or something. That's another change. Anyway, different subject, but um, but because of the way and I think I it, my view was slightly, um, shall we say, biased because of that environment I was working in, which was very, uh, very um, traditional, uh, very kind of incredibly siloed as an as a organization. And the personalities I encountered there, the kind of you know your traditional um, delivery manager type, your traditional big fat layer of middle management uh, was so overwhelming. I just couldn't believe it and I probably can't say it on the podcast, but I had some very direct experiences and confrontations with people um, that were that really made me question how this organization, is actually functional in the first place. But, you know, that was a part of the org that I was in. Um, It's such a, they call it a country, if you ever worked there, Um, and it is really like a country. So that was a part of the organization I was in. There was a lot of good things about it, too. Uh, So, in other words, um, I think my understanding of what people were telling me, no, you know, they're, they're like 10 to 15 years behind UK and Europe, I think it was biased by working in that environment slightly, so I, I I bring that down. I still think UK and Europe are ahead. I mean, there's a lot of thinking happening in the UK and in, and in America. Um, you know, there's a lot of advancements um, that's usually always coming out of that part of the world, the southern uh, the northern hemisphere. Um, and it seems that Australia has some really great professionals and some really great thinkers. But I just think more of the innovation stuff and the forward thinking stuff still seems to be coming out of. Uh, uk europe and america but i also think that's because as an industry and when when it comes to agile they're probably they've been doing it i think for longer and they're probably slightly more ahead of australia that's my view Um, it's just an opinion yeah
0: no i think i think that's absolutely fair enough and i would probably say that the talent pool of course in europe and and in the united states is way way bigger than it is here as well right so i think they've, they've got more people doing it probably more people experienced in doing it but they've also got access and the ability to attract people globally into the organizations based in those continents yeah 100 percent. i think we struggle with here in australia a little bit and it's kind of weird because i feel like having like massive organizations that are well known like your atlassians and so on and so forth they do a really good job of of putting australia on the map from a tech perspective and obviously doing some really good work in the the agile space. and That that sort of thing is, I think, great for Australia overall and probably great for um, the journey that we're on from an agility perspective. But it's still hard to compete with the the Northern Hemisphere, as you say.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I agree. I think the sheer number of people, you know, is is one factor. I mean, another thing about working in Australia, and when I say that, I constrict myself to Victoria (laughs) because that's where I am in Melbourne is, you know, in terms of company diversity, the, just naturally, I mean, there isn't as much as there is back in Europe, UK and America. So um, the, all the, nearly everybody I know here, all the professionals, they always bounce around the same organizations, the same handful of organizations, right? You've got your banks, you've got your telcos. And, you know, if, it, if it's more interesting, you've got the kind of lesser brands, um, maybe some high street brands and that kind of thing. And of course, the um, you know, the Woolies, the Coles, and those kinds of uh, brands as well. And they all seem to bounce around there. And I think from my experience of working with some of these organizations and having friends who work with these organizations, um, they're all very similar internally. So you go from one role to another role in a different organization. The environment is not too dissimilar. The, the way of working is pretty much the same as where you were before, except this and this might be different. You know, so it's... it's. um I think there's less room to innovate uh, in, in that true. sense. Yeah, that's a good observation.
0: Yeah. And, and I would yeah. say that, right, again, from um, from a recruitment perspective, it's very easy for me if, I, if I'm if i working with a candidate and they've worked in – this is a, a pure example. If they it makes sense, if they've worked in Woolies, I know the first conversation that I'm going to have is with Coles.
1: Right. It just makes sense. <laughs> exactly. My there you go. Yeah. There. Yeah.
0: That might be a little bit on the nose, but – you understand that I, I can match up companies and organizations and where people will fit in based on that, knowing that they are the same environments, knowing that they work in the same sort of way. And it's just a kind of, you can just drop somebody in and they'll they'll hit the ground running from day number one.
1: Right, precisely, yeah.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> all right, so then you, you've been operating in
0: the space in, in Australia or Melbourne for a, a good number of years now. I was kind of keen to, to dive into the agnostic agile piece with you kind of what it is, why you set it up, what the plans are, and and how that all came to be.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Agnostic Agile is something that um, it was born out of a a frustration, actually, I would say. Um, This was around 2015 or 16 at the time in London. And um, as I got more and more involved with the Agile community, I kept seeing uh, all these things on LinkedIn and social media, Twitter, about how things like you know project managers program managers are soon to be no more like we don't need these people anymore because we have agile now and you know we have scrum and who the hell needs projects anymore we're supposed to be doing these things called products cadences and roadmaps and value streams and all that actually value streams wasn't mentioned that much back then but you get the picture that really frustrated me and why because of course I had been working and had built my expertise and was still working as project, program, even portfolio manager, right? But also, I was actually working in Agile. So what the hell does that mean then? So um, it started there. and But then I kept seeing this more and more. And I, 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 I started going to the meetup scene. Um, and people were talking about this in the meetup scenes. And I'm not going to mention... the the frameworks, but I went to one particular framework and all they did was bash stuff. And I just, I was so sick of it. They were bashing other agile frameworks. They were bashing these, the roles that basically have upheld the industry until now, you know, and I find, I found it very ironic because the agile coaches who are doing this kind of uh, denigration for lack of a better word um, toward project and program managers were the very people who were hired by those projects and program managers to be there. That's the thing that people miss, right? You're there because you're, you're part of a project cost budget somewhere, right? Sam, Don't I still
0: it. see the bashing happening today. I still end up in conversations with purists. and Yeah. Honestly, it's mad. It's almost like the industry's eating itself sometimes.
1: Yeah, I, I agree completely. And that leads me to my other point. Uh, the tipping point for me or the climax for me was that um, when I started working with clients and encountering these people on the floor, so to speak, uh, it, at work in real time, looking and listening to what they were saying. And I remember one engagement. I, I, I'm not going to name the company because all the year, actually, because uh, maybe someone can work it out. <laughs> but um, right. I, rem- I remember going in as a program manager or an agile project manager at the at the time and then becoming uh, then running a big program and i was i was warned i was warned in the kind of interview uh, which was basically just a conversation with me drawing things on a whiteboard those were the days um i was warned that the teams here have really had enough of agile and i'm like well what do you mean oh the answer was look we had this agile coaching um he was very dogmatic about working in Scrum. Uh, the team he was the team had to work in two week sprints. They had to do this. They had to do that. And of course, anyone who works in Scrum today knows that that's actually the wrong way to go about it. Anyway, right? Anyway, he was doing all this stuff, and then he was causing a lot of noise and you know in the retros and in the sprint st- and the sprint planning meetings and all that stuff and stand ups. He was saying things like, "Don't listen to the project managers." just do this work. Just don't listen to them. Like, And it was really, I. in my view, very unprofessional for a start, right? Let alone the implications about Agile and so on. Anyway, long story short, I got in, I started working with a team, gained their trust. We eventually had a, a great relationship and they were very wary of me because of course I was going in as an Agile project manager, right? And they've been warned about people like me. <laughs> so uh, yeah, long story short, what led to Agnostic Agile is that, um, and I've told this story before, uh, I actually was in Soho in in uh, London's West End and I was waiting around in well, a Café Nero. The yeah, exactly. I <laughs> world,
0: yes, I loved it.
1: Really, I loved it. I really miss it, actually. And it's changed so yes, much yep. recently. <laughs> um, I was sitting in Café Nero having a long black or whatever they called it. An Americano, I believe it's called, <laughs> back home. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And I was actually waiting, getting my watch fixed because I had a watch and it was at the shop and they said it would take like a couple of hours. I said, okay, well, I'm just going to wait around. I got out my phone and I started writing um, this thing that eventually became uh, what was initially called the agnostic agile oath, because this was the main thing that was on my mind. So I wrote a whole bunch of principles on my phone um, and then I refined it later on. I took it back to work and I took it to a couple of trusted colleagues uh, in London who I worked with. They really liked it. They thought it was great. Um, I refined it more. And when I had the finished version, um, give or take a few, you know, wordsmithing and stuff, it was basically finished. I went out to a couple of other people I knew on LinkedIn, including Ari Van bennekom who is a co- co-author of the Agile Manifesto. And long story short, they all really loved it. And um, I got some, I got a website designed, uh, I got the first logo designed, I put it up on the website, and I started to build this movement. And I didn't really know I was building a movement until a lot of people started resonating with it and wanted to join. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? Join what exactly? So it became a thing. So then I put a thing on the website where you could sign it, a bit like you'd sign a manifesto. Um, but I, I didn't want to call it a manifesto because it, it's just really a set of principles and people signed it and so on. And then fast forwards to about a year and a half ago, or maybe two years ago. I, I can't remember exactly. Um, we decided to incorporate it as a nonprofit based in the Netherlands. Um, and Ari van Benekum is still working with me and we have a board um, and you can go and have a look at agnostic agile and how it's evolved at agnosticagile.org, And um, And, and of late, we've we've been kind of getting back into the community. We hold about two global conferences a year now. Um, I we've ju- we've just rebooted the London meetups, and I really grew it out of those London meetups. Um, the the London AA meetup now has nearly seven thousand people in it. Um, when I left, it was the biggest delivery orientated meetup in the whole of the UK. I don't know if that's still the case. Um, but it just grew from that, and I just kept doing talks all over the place and getting other people to do talks. And um, it just resonated with everybody. And, of course, Chris, now uh, what I love seeing out there in the industry is more and more people, they either use the word agnostic or agile agnostic or whatever they want to say, um, but the the um, the direction is of agile in general is that we do need to be more diverse when it comes to agility more agnostic when it comes to agility we can't just assume we're going to go and then do scrum or do safe or whatever right and I'm seeing more and more of that in the market and I'd like to think agnostic agile has contributed to that but yeah
0: and so this this was basically just born out of an idea of yours that kind of came to mind sitting there having that coffee in Soho and snowballed
1: yes and I think the motivation was my frustration at the time as well I yeah, did not right. like seeing um, such negativity because another aspect of that actually really quickly was that I thought it was putting businesses and and people like, you know, traditional PMs, product, project managers, program managers, PMO, um, you know, and delivery leaders in general. I thought it was putting them off Agile. It was giving Agile a bad name when when that was a very bloody thing they needed, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So that was another driving force.
0: That's amazing. And, and have you managed to bring those meetups to Australia? Or is that something that people can get involved with locally?
1: Yeah, that is a really good question. Um, when I first moved here, my instinct was to set up a meetup group um, mm. and do it all here. But when you move uh, such a long distance um, it, and you, know, you just start working and stuff and everything's new and you're on the opposite side of the world, it, it does get a little bit hard. So I didn't do that. But what I did and what and and what I'm doing now, again, because lockdown was a kind of splinter in all of this, um, is kind of reigniting the energy and the passion back into Agnostic Agile and with the help of my board members, of course. And we actually have a community as well, which I am working to reignite um, on citizen.agnosticagile.org. Um, it's one of those mighty network communities. I'm not sure you, if you've heard of that before. Um, no, it's like I'm a it's, yeah. It's called Mighty Networks. It's just a. It's like um, it's like a mini version of LinkedIn, just for your community, and you oh, can nice. customize it to your heart's content. It's really good. Um, I'd encourage oh, you to um, check it out.
0: You'll have to link me um the websites and such so I can put them in the description of the, the episode. Yeah, yeah, the yeah absolutely. Uh, so really to good. answer your
1: question, um. I didn't, but I'm still thinking about doing that. But I cannot run it because I've just got too much going on. So we're always looking for um, global chapters for for Agnostic Agile. We've got a UK chapter, which is basically the London meetup. We, we do have another chapter that's coming out soon in the Nordics. Um, so I would love if um some keen individual who wants to get more into giving back to the community and so on which ultimately is what agnostic agile is all about um you know to get in touch and uh talk about owning the melbourne chapter or the or the sydney chapter or wherever in australia yeah
0: that's a great call to action what what kind of person would that need to be
1: um you know someone who is generally passionate about agility about helping organizations Um, about engaging with the community, about listening um, and giving, um, who has um, ideas or who is a good networker, who likes to talk to people, who likes running meetups, who wants to get their name out there and build their profiles a bit more. Anyone with a, I would say passion is the most important thing. If you're really interested in this stuff and, and you like it and uh, you know, you want to step forward, then I wholeheartedly encourage you. And you know, when we oh, friend, do chapters, TV, oh yeah, hey, do it, mate. Um, <laughs> when we do chapters, there's always like uh, a couple of people to, to run it as well, so you'll have a buddy as well.
0: Oh, brilliant! Okay. Um, well, that's brilliant. I think if if you could get something off the ground like that, it would just be amazing. And what I found is certainly in the kind of post-COVID world as do rightly or wrongly call it that. Um, people are really keen to get back into a room with each other, man. Um, yeah. I've, I've been to a couple of events recently. I've, I'm going to one at the end of this week. Um, and people are just so excited. There's like a, a palpable buzz in the room. Um, people are keen to network again. People are eager to learn about what's happening and share. Um, and that's kind of what the Agile community was always about. And it's sort of become difficult to do that, of course, during COVID. A lot of things went online, but it's not the same. Um, And and I do think whilst there's some really good stuff happening in the space and in the community locally, I think we'd all benefit massively from having a dedicated uh, meetup like that.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, lockdown, especially, as you know, especially in Victoria, was incredibly, um, I would say, vicious, aggressive and tough for a lot of people. And no, that, is where, that is where the podcast that I was doing came out, the Unofficial Agile Podcast, because we're all indoors. And, um, you know, for me, that was another way of giving back to the community, whilst at the same time trying to maintain my own mental health, <laughs> you know, and, and trying to just push through all of this uncertainty. It's an
0: amazing vehicle for doing that.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And it was good because you get to learn about all this stuff. Um, It's a kind of new field. You get to become a pseudo sound engineer (laughs) and um, and all of that stuff, you know. Um, So you learn a lot. But I think I mentioned to you offline before. uh, It was great because we actually helped uh, a couple of people find work. And that is the most the thing I'm most proud of of the podcast. It actually helped people. And that's great. You know,
0: that's so good. That really is so good. Um, yeah. It's funny because I think we, we kind of say that we've got the same intentions to a, to a point with with doing this podcast, and sometimes it is to highlight great people in the market. Sometimes it's just to highlight ideas and and thoughts. But I do feel like when you do this sort of thing, you kind of pump in content out into the world, and you never really know what's what's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to find it's only ever positive though, and if you've you know during the, the podcasting days managed to find people work, then that itself is is enough,
1: isn't it? Oh yeah, oh totally, and and you're right. Actually, it's I think the reception the reception was very positive, and um and I don't know if this is just my observation uh, from my own biases or not, but I perceive before lockdown, my view is, and this is strictly a personal view, um, I felt the, the online landscape was a little bit more critical and challenging, and I just feel that post COVID, uh. People are generally like loaded with a lot more support and positivity. Might might even call it toxic positivity if you want. But you know, like you'll you'll rarely see um, if someone posts something um, unless it's just the controversial subjects. Like, here's a tip, by the way, to your listeners: if you want to get some likes and comments, just write something bad about Safe the Scale agile Framework. <laughs> there you
0: go. <laughs> I see that every day. Or every other day. It works yeah. a treat.
1: I mean, other than that, though, and of course there are exceptions, generally people are like quite positive and responsive to things. I agree. And that's what I found I anyway. I sort of um,
0: made it a mission, along with everybody, actually, our precision sourcing to to kind of try and post valuable and uh, incredible content daily um, on LinkedIn. And I, I guess LinkedIn is a platform that we spend most of our time on as recruiters. Um, and it's a win which we are kind of broadly connected to the communities that we work with. Um, and at first, I found it really unnatural to kind of share my knowledge um, in writing on social media, but I'm, I'm not a poster on Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. Um, and whilst it was really unnatural and really weird, it, it started to sort of generate some really robust discussion. I've learned so much from hearing people's opinions on my opinions. I've changed some of my thinking. Um it's been a great way to connect with people, broadly speaking. It's just been amazing. And I, and I think, yes, occasionally I'll get the the odd sort of ding-dong where someone wants to say something aggressive or wants to come out of the block aggressively, and that happens. And I think that in any situation where you put yourself out there into the public domain, you run the risk of that. Um, but it's, it's one in a thousand, that sort of thing, you know?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, um, 100%, yeah. And I, I've seen yeah. your posts, actually, since we've connected, and I think they're really good, like... I wasn't fishing
0: yeah. for a compliment there, but I'll take no, no. it.
1: Well, there you go. You deserve it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so looking to the future then, um, we, we kind of touched on this at the start, but how do you think the industry perception of an agile coach has changed? And what do you think the future of coaching might or should look like
1: in reality? Right. So I can't really have this conversation without talking about certifications And what I think has happened, uh, in my view, I think we've gone past the tipping point of the certification mill, specifically in Scrum. Um, And Scrum's not the only thing. There's safe as well, and there's all this other stuff. But the two biggest things out there are probably Scrum and safe, I would say. And um, the, the thing with Scrum is that the Scrum Guide doesn't really evolve that much or that quickly, and it's pretty much the same as it was <laughs> six, seven, eight years ago, right? Um, with very subtle differences. And so, um, what I th- part of the reason I think that the industry is where it is, and businesses are more internalizing Agile and all that, aside from the macroeconomic uh, milieu, is that I think savvy leaders and certainly the ones I've I've been working with right um and execs have kind of awoken to the fact that um well this thing all these like you know hiring just because someone has a certification or hiring a kind of one track framework kind of person a specialist in that kind of thing whether it's scrum safe or whatever um I think it's going past that point because I think that you know, a lot of leaders... Have, so in, in Melbourne, there's a, and in Australia in general, there's a lot of agile transformation going on with big banks like ANZ, the telcos like Telstra, Optus, and so on and so forth, and some of the clients that I'm working with as well. Um, and I think during that work, I think part of transformation work, good transformation work, is education and is building internal capability, right? And I think that's the whole point. So the more good stuff you do in terms of that, Transformation, building internal capability—you um, uh, know, delivering, designing good bespoke uplift programs for businesses. The more of that stuff you do, the more business leaders will realize: well, our agile is our agile, and it's not necessarily. We don't necessarily want a canned approach to agile, right? So we're less looking for people like you know who who have a plethora of scrum certifications, right? And we're more looking for people who may have that, but have all this other stuff as well. And who can think outside the box and who can help us oh, with yeah. our specific context. So that's the kind of, that's the direction and the, and the feeling that I'm seeing. That's definitely the case with a couple of clients that I've been working with in the past. And the one I'm working with right now, um, in fact, um, you know, we go so far as to say, um, we actually explicitly are not looking for scrum oriented professionals and our recent hiring has been reflective of that um, and that's not because it's not because we don't like scrum. Uh, scrum is a great framework. this is not this has nothing to do with bashing scrum, right But the problem is the the certification mill has produced so many, Scrum thinkers—that it's very difficult to find the good ones who can think outside of that box, outside of that framework, and and work in highly contextual situations who can bring something novel to that situation. And that's so in the hiring that I've been helping my client do—that's been our challenge. We've gone out to market, we've got just a range of people who just the same, like they're almost like carbon copies of each other, right? Yes. And that's what's happened with the certification mill right um and and so it's difficult to find um you know good all-round i would say agnostically <laughs> oriented people It um, is yeah, Agile. yeah,
0: where i've seen people fail in new roles is where they've gone into an organization and just try to kind of implement the framework and the way of doing things by the book textbook best practice and it hasn't been fit for purpose for that particular organization's unique situation exactly. Um, And those people that can't think outside of the framework or the ideals, they tend to struggle um, in in most scenarios. And and that's one of the frustrations I've I've encountered with the the organizations that I work with is that they can't work with those types of people.
1: Yeah. uh, And it's really um, kind of, I guess, um, refreshing and validating, too, to hear you say that from your perspective as a recruiter. Uh, And, you know, you would know firsthand how hard it is for organizations to find the right kinds of candidate. And in my view, fast going or gone, depending where you work, are the days of I've got all these certifications. I'm high. I'm I'm employable. And I should have a good shot at this role because of that reason. That's not the case. If I'm hiring an agile professional, honestly, if I see um, a CV uh, and um, the CV is full of, you know, certifications on on a particular framework. Unless we're hiring for that, like we're doing a safe transformation or something, right? Unless we're hiring for that, which we usually not, then I would actually stay away. I won't even bother getting to the first stage because so we've seen it so many times. They're just going to come in and they're going to talk about the same old stuff: sprints, this. Sprint backlog, that product backlog, this all that stuff, right? And it's like, yeah, but we need you to think outside the box here. We're not doing yeah, th- that kind of thing. We've, we've gone beyond that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You know what? Here's a, an admission. Maybe I shouldn't make this, but I rarely look at certifications on CVs. Certainly, before making the choice to connect with somebody or or to work with somebody, that the certification piece is low for me in terms of what I'm looking for when I when I speak to and work with candidates um, and typically because I find it, it's the story of the experience and the story of their career that is perhaps more interesting um, and more relevant yeah. for the way that I work and of course we can always check certifications; it's a quick thing to do but I've never thought of it from that perspective whereby someone could effectively be kind of too far into one framework and have too many certifications and that could be a turnoff for an employer I'd never really seen it that way
1: so i i actually i love the fact that you that's how you approach candidates and you know you go through their story i love that you know that's a really good way of doing it and and i think everyone should do that um the reason why uh uh We, you know, I look at a CV and if it's loaded with the same kind of, or same type of certification is because simply because we've like, you know, organizations, um, don't have time to into, if you've ever interviewed on behalf of a client, like it's just so time consuming and you face the same thing, you know, all the time because you get similar CVs, um, now, it doesn't mean we automatically push back these CVs if, if there's something that's interesting or, or to be quite frank, if there's a lack of candidates, we'll get them in for a first pass, right? And see how they do, right? But it's we have been through in the client I'm working with right now, we went through so many candidates. It took maybe three to four months just to find someone uh, who, who was well-rounded enough. Yeah, that's probably a good thing to say um that he fit right in right and and we made him an offer and um Thank by you. the way i just Great want to caveat this as well i just want to caveat this really quickly there is absolutely nothing wrong with being passionate and loving working in a certain way or on a, on a certain framework that's absolutely brilliant right and i highly encourage people to follow their passion i'm all about ikigai uh no time to get into it now but it's a good thing to look up if we, if we don't know what it is um I know the book Yeah, yeah it's brilliant Um, So I'm all for that. But I think this goes back to the main thread of the conversation. I think we're going to need more of that as professionals to be employable in the current market and in the upcoming economic market too.
0: Interesting point. I I would tend to agree. Um, At risk of wanting to pitch precision services, because I've been recruiting for 11 years, I can't help myself but do this. One thing that we found to be really effective as a... um, the kind of first stage of the hiring process is that we've started to send our clients um, not just a cv but the cv with an attached video whereby we ask um a candidate two or three or four predetermined questions that we agree with the hiring organization up front and we have them answer those questions on video they don't get an opportunity to prepare in advance it's, it's very much an off-the-cuff sort of thing but when we when we've done that what we've been able to do is save organizations that kind of hour, 50 minutes that you would spend doing the first round interview um, because you're seeing really early in the process before you even have to spend time interviewing what a candidate's like, how they respond to questions, how they communicate and, and how well they would engage with your stakeholders. Um, right. It's a relatively new thing that we've been doing, but we've had fantastic feedback and it seems to be working really well.
1: So do you do you interview them for a few minutes on the video and then send the video to the client? Or do you just get them to do like an introduction kind of thing? And we then send it on
0: them on. Yeah, we interview them. Um, so it's very organic. We know what's going on in the room sort of thing. Um, right. And it's only five minutes and it's very casual. Um, but it's a good way for us to kind of say, look, here's the candidate. This is why we like them. This is how they answer these questions. What do you think? Sort of thing. And, and, and you're able to find out, what the hiring organization is able to find out essentially what they would find out in a first round interview that would take them at least an hour.
1: I think that's a fantastic idea, Chris. Really, yeah. really good. It's yeah. working really well. Um, yeah,
0: good. Anyway, I'm I, I on pitch our, our services <laughs> any, any more than that. Um, <laughs> one, one final question for you. And I suppose there's a lot more we could go into. I'm conscious of time. Um, how would somebody who is passionate about the agile space but perhaps is working in a more traditional delivery role look to make that transition and move into let's say they're a project manager or let's say they're a BA and they want to be a scrum master or a coach how would they how would they do that
1: yeah so I think okay so let's say if you're you're a project manager um, and to some extent the BA as well uh, the first thing the first and foremost thing is to really educate yourself in terms of what's out there really understand what agile is. Um, and to be honest, by at this point in time in where are we going on April 2023, you should probably know the basics, right? But if you don't um, get out there, I would say attend meetups, attend all these agile meetups they're fantastic. They're such a great learning ground. Um, it, you know, you'd get all kinds of different speakers and and all levels of expertise so you can start to assimilate and synthesize all this information in your head um i would say read some books watch some youtube videos do some linkedin learning or whatever you've got access to just make sure you're you're up to scratch and if you are or when you are um if you're interested in getting deeper and you come from a delivery background one of the best transitionary um frameworks to use is the Agile PM framework, in my view. It used to be called DSDM. It's still around. It's, I think it's still accredited by the APMG, I think. Um, and you can even get the handbook online on the website. It's it's a really good transitionary step for traditional program managers or, or and project managers who have worked in the traditional PMO environment who want to work or who are working in more of an agile environment, you know. And, and hints to all the all my traditional friends out there who are working in these delivery roles. Agile is not dividing your projects into sprints, right? That's not what it is. Um, that seems to be a common thing, uh, but it's not that. So, so look at the Agile PM framework. That's a really good start. Um, you don't have to get a qualification in it, but just look at the information there. Look at what it's telling you because it's very, very useful. Um, and uh, I would say, you know, get a buddy. If you know somebody who works in Agile, chances are you do if you're working in the industry, um, get, get in touch with him or her and and you know, sit down, interview them, ask some questions. You know, you'll find someone who who's willing to help you. The thing I love about the Agile community, it's very open, it's very uh, willing to kind of take you in and 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 really, you know, really expressive about things as well. And we, we love our post its and our diagrams and all that stuff. Um, so meetups and look at agile PM specifically, uh, and then you'll you'll be well on your way.
0: I think that's great advice. Thank you so much for that, um, Sam. Just want to th- I want to thank you for jumping on and uh, and sharing y- your insights, your story, your ideas, your observations. I think it's um super interesting, and I wish we actually had more time because I could sit here and talk to you for hours. Um, yeah, same. And perhaps we <laughs> need to do this again at some point down the line.